One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate how everything has a history, even the most unexpected of subjects, like pigs, valleys, and woe. (laughs) (laughs) I think we've done valleys, haven't we? We did valleys at the wonderful Chalk Valley History Festival, which is on again, but woe! Oh, woe is me. Let's do woe, that's great, yeah. Simple, dimple, and pimple, wimple, (laughs) principle... And logical. I was running out there. The rhyme scheme makes no sense to me at all, but actually quite fun. However, we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, as always, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, that the history of ladders is in fact all about prehistoric cave art. It's about cavemen getting up to high places. It's about the Crusades and the capture of Constantinople in... 1204, which is about flying ladders. It's about lamplighters in 18th century Dublin. Accidents and superstitions. So it's falling off and walking under ladders. It's also all about ancient and medieval sieges, attacking fortified castles with ladders. And of course, it's about that brilliant and popular children's game, Snakes and Ladders. Or who knew (laughs) that the history of uncles is in fact all about Richard III and the Princes in the Tower. It's about 17th century kinship networks in the diary of Samuel Pepys. Of course it is. It's about the personification of the US state in the figure of Uncle Sam. And it's also about the reign of the boy king, Edward VI, who ascended to the throne and was accompanied by his uncle, the Lord Mm. Protector. We should do some more family uh, things. We should do cousins... Oh, yes. I, I think, think that so. would be a good idea. Have we really... done fathers? No, we've done we've mothers. Done we've definitely we've done, done the history of mothers. That was yes. great. And brothers we've done. Ooh. Okay. Um, hmm, maybe grandparents. Ooh, There's been a bit, a bit of focus on, on the elder generation with COVID going yes, on. Let's do something with grandparents. That sounds good. Okay, we'll yes. do that. Um, but you're wondering, I'm sure, who was telling you all this fascinating stuff. Let me just tell you that if history was a game of cards, perhaps cribbage, of course, it's the best card game for two, invented in the 17th century by the English poet Sir John Suckling. This man, this man, he would hold the top scoring hand of 29 points uh, of three fives and a jack, and then the cut card is another five, and that's the same suit as the jack, but it gets very complicated. The point is that so multiple and varied is his ability to score from the cards he has dealt 
by the past. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is Professor James Daybell. Hello, Sam. That's a lovely introduction, as ever. Uh, And I'm sorry that we're still not sitting opposite each other because we are social distancing. However, let's just say... If the man not sitting opposite me was a card-related historian, he'd only be Johnny Moss. <laughs> Johnny Moss, eh, Sam? Three-time winner of the World Poker Championship for the first time in 1970, then in 1971, and then again in 1974, a.k.a. the grand old man of poker. And that's how I see you, Sam, the grand old man, well, not too old, of maritime history. Yes, it's the famous <laughs> historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. Um, we're doing something very close to my heart, very dear to me. We're doing the history of playing cards. Uh, which... are, do you like? Are you a are you a card sharp, Sam? I play cards all the time. I, I play cards every day, oh and I've pl- I've played cards every day for since I was, I don't know, um, twenty. I reckon twenty Gosh. or twenty something years. Um, I and I learn new card games all the time. Um, mm. I'm learning bezique at the minute. Uh, I, I currently am obsessed with cribbage, and I play a lot of cribbage. I learned that last year. It's a surprisingly complicated game. You think it's simple, but then you realise just how unbelievably uh, complicated it is. And I've been teaching my kids how to play three-card brag, which is, if anyone's played it, it's, it is hands down the best form of poker, because it is all played entirely in the mind. Ooh, so, well, let, anyway, me, yes. let me tell you later about Richard Seymour's The Complete Gamester, uh, published in 1734, which is full of instructions how to play all manner of unusual and most genteel games, hmm. uh, including cards, Sam. That's actually, brilliant suddenly, instructions there. Uh, I, you can, obviously, we start our podcast thinking about the different ways we can do any subjects. And you've struck on something there which I didn't think about at all. But that is that there is a history of uh, books teaching you to play cards. I've got a wonderful little one. Um yeah, called the the best card games for two. It's really old. Um, certainly, first quarter of the twentieth century. Um, and I was, that's a that's a rabbit hole we could have gone down. The um, well, maybe you're going to do it, James. But advice on cards, on how to play cards, and how you learn to play cards. I think that's really interesting. Actually, I wonder to what extent it was. Uh, I wonder what the earliest the earliest. Um, kind of card manual was hmm. Ooh, that was you. You need to. You need to. You need to read Robert Tilly's A History of Playing Cards. I suggest, <laughs> I uh, which I think go. You know, goes all the way back to the sort of medieval world about that. Um, I mean, I was thinking of cards in terms of. I thought you could do this the sort of the traditional way, and you could actually think of cards and playing, and there, there may be some of that. But I was also thinking about thinking of cards as material objects and how they how to read them um and one thing that that sort of um that i chanced upon while squirreling around was a lovely new blog piece uh from the national archives and it was playing cards captured at sea and it's the collections of cards you'll love this sam it's the collections of cards that are part of the prize papers of the High Court of Admiralty. So these are basically um, collections of documents and objects collected between or from the period between 1652 and 1815. And the prize papers are its basically all due to the sort of warfare that was happening uh, at the time and people uh, not acting as pirates, but basically seizing ships and 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 confiscating all the sort of goods and and documents. And so what we have is fascinatingly 
these collections of unopened letters, uh, and there's a big project uh, to work on them at the moment. But also this really rich material culture, and this this piece that I was reading is about these 18th century playing cards that were found on a on a French ship. And what's interesting is that obviously on one level the sailors were using these cards you know, for, for, for leisure and, and to play games and presumably to gamble. But what's also fascinating is that on the back of them, there are various scribbled notes, which shows that they actually had a different use on board ship. And in fact, they were used as, as vouchers or as IOUs or as, you know, as, as sort of calling cards or, or for, for all sorts of... of um, you know, writing tasks to jot down calculations or or preserve, you know, notes to yourself. And it's on the back access of access to paper, isn't it? It's you access know, to paper. Yeah. yeah. So there size, are sort there of, are lots of different bits a, of it. There are written surface. Um, and what what's interesting is is all of the things that are written on the back of the cards and on the back of one of them. And I went, I went, I went to tempt the um, I went to tempt the French, but it translates translates as good for twenty pounds of meat. For the ship L'Amiable Julie of Bordeaux, Captain Marin at Port-au-Prince, the 26th of February, 1756. And there's another one that, that actually has a calculation on the back of it, which um, which is basically, I think, gambling debts, uh, which is 16 cards at six livres. It's, it's 96 livres. 14 ditto at five is 70. One ditto is is four and a half livres and so it goes on so you can actually see how these cards were were used on board on board ship the article's really it's a really short piece but really intriguing go out and find it uh, on the national archives website there's a little bit on manufacturing techniques and how these forms of cards were printed in block printing so in other words they were all printed together on one sort of large sheet and then and then chopped up uh, so that they could be they could be used and some of them are are, are, are coloured so they they're later sort of you know they're either printed in colour or some of them are hand painted um, so it's yeah it's a it's a lovely sort of blog item and I thought it was a nice sort of little hook to get us into thinking about how we think of cards not just in terms of gambling or leisure and 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 card playing but also in terms of the other uses for them. Yeah, um, I love that. So there we go. As tokens, it's something I came across actually. And it made me think about money. Full stop. How um, how are you using cash nowadays, James? I I, I asked this because I took out some cash to pay a builder in April last year, and I've still got it. I've I haven't spent any cash, and I had to put a pound in a in a in a car parking machine the other day. Um, and had a complete sort of crisis because I I I couldn't didn't have any money. I didn't know where I was going to find the money that I had did have, and I couldn't pay for the parking. Um, and eventually, I, I got a I got a pound. I had to grovel around at the bottom of the car, and I found a pound coin. And it was holding a pound coin was really strange. Do you know in the Daybell household, cash is still currency among the younger Daybells for pocket mm. money. So they still insist on you know on wanting you know tangible money in yeah. there. That's good. 
burning a, a hole in their pockets. I think broadly, though, we are in a changing moment in, in the world with our relationship with money, aren't we? And that's not just about having uh, the, the new plastic tenors, which I don't like at all. I like I like proper... I liked paper money, James, not plastic money. I like pound but, notes. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, like be- pound- I like being in America because uh, actually having dollar bills, you feel like a, a king. You could, have, yeah. like, you could literally have $20 in your pocket uh, comp- comprised of $21 bills and you feel like you're, you know, you've got a bulging wad. They're, they're, it's extraordinary. They're, they're all uh, they're unusual because they're all the same size dollars, aren't they? Or the, the a hundred dollar note is the same size as the one dollar note. Yes, you have to just... be you have to be numerate to be able to to be able to you know. Yeah, you have to be able difference. to have to be able to see as well. Yes, <laughs> that it's not about size. yes. yeah, it doesn't help if you're blind. Um, no, that's true. But the, your changing relationship with money. As we are going through this period, everyone just have a quick think about your wallets and uh, and how you've used money over the last year. So, so you have a personal changing relationship with money, and that has an extraordinary history. The way that that people's people have uh, you know have changed money, what they thought of as currency. I talked briefly about shells as currency once. I think when we did shells, um, and you know the physical reality of it as well. And card money is an actual thing. You said they found on these ships. Um, credit cards and credit card uh, um sorry playing cards with with writing on them that those are not necessarily just vouchers they they came from the era of the french revolution which is what i suspect um they're actually actual approved currency by the nation and there are some wonderful examples i'm looking at a, a one here it's a seven of hearts and they're the uh, queen of diamonds they've got writing all over it. it looks like signatures and more complex patterns on the reverse the seven of hearts has a value of three souls queen of diamonds of 15 souls and what we talk about here is is playing card money which first makes its appearance at the end of the 17th century so the 1680s um and it happens in French colonies primarily. It seems to be a French thing and a bit of a Dutch thing. Some Dutch colonies have it as well. But the the most of the evidence we have comes from uh, New France, so what is now Canada, from the 1680s. Um, and it's really interesting thinking about what's going on here. So if you've got a colony, you need to get money to your colony. And the only way you can get money into your colony at the beginning, before they're established cities and they've got all the resources that the normal, the, the, the home country has, you have to import it. You have to bring it in by ship. And that's dangerous. Uh, you can get captured, as you, you said, with those uh, collections from the National Archives, and you can get sunk by storms, by big waves, whatever it might be. Um, there's also the danger of coping with major rapid problems in the economy. So in Canada, the use of playing card money all happened because of sudden national insolvency, basically, which was caused by an ongoing war with the Iroquois and also um, huge troughs in demand um, because of uh, the changing fate of the trade in beavers, beaver pelts. Um, They ran out of money to pay their soldiers fighting the Iroquois, basically, and they, 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 they couldn't pay them. They hadn't been able to import the money by ship from France to New France. So what they do is they they make playing cards into actual money. It makes you think actually about how important it is being someone like the Spanish, where you've got a maritime empire, but it has resources of silver and gold and emeralds. So they, they are actually mining 
the things which will be turned into specie. They can do it themselves to a certain extent out there, but primarily it all has to be done back in Spain. But at least they, they are able to get their hands on things which are of massive value, monetary value, in South America. They couldn't do that in, in, um, in New France, in Canada. So... They they turn playing cards into actual money. They could go up to 100 livres, hugely expensive. And they reckon that 2 million livres in total was actually issued and circulated through these playing cards, um, playing, this playing card money. Um, it becomes a bit of a problem because uh, some people don't trust it. They start hoarding what few coins they have. It can lead to inflation. There are real problems with um, uh, a forgery essentially. Um, and it, it this starts in 1685. It comes and goes a bit. It's, it's used again in the 1730s, then again in the 1760s. It's used during the French Revolution. Uh, it's also used in Dutch colony, uh, Dutch colonies in uh, in Asia, which I think is, is particularly interesting. But you can point is you can study these as objects as you were talking about. There are some examples in the National Bank of Belgium, they've got some wonderful ones, and they show us that to prepare these playing cards, to turn the card into money, what they had to do was they were given a denomination, it said this is how much it was, they're given a seal, they're given a serial number, and they're given signatures. So those signatures are crucially important because those signatures turn a playing card into a uh, a piece of currency. And they're often, well, certainly in Canada, New France, it was the uh, intendant, the governor and the treasurer. So you had to have three signatures on the card for it to be turned into official money. So they are um, 17th century use of playing cards as actual currency. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, I love it, Sam. Absolutely brilliant. And this 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 idea of currency leads on to what I'm going to talk about, which is cards and gambling. Um, and it reminds me a little bit of what we were arguing a few weeks ago or what I was arguing a few weeks ago about tea. And in the 18th century, tea becomes something that is connected to polite society. But also it's something that has sort of more negative connotations about it. And in the same way, I think we can see this with with cards. So in the 18th century, among the sort of urban population, among the sort of polite society, uh, playing cards and being able to play different kinds of games was something that you did around the the around the dinner table or around the card table. So it becomes part of the social scene it becomes part of, you know, something that is seen to be fashionable. So part of the beau monde, so that kind of, you know, exuberant lifestyle. And um, and we can see this in books like uh, The Complete Gamester that I was talking to you about earlier on, uh, which was published in 1734. Uh, and there's a, a preface at the front which sort of explains, you know, precisely, you know, 
the the sort of social importance to the elite in the 18th century of playing all of these sort of parlor games um and the the contents of the book you know describe all sorts of games from billiards and bowling and chess and then a whole range of games associated with with cards have you ever heard of these uh, of picket the game of gleek lombra or the spanish game there's cribbage which you were talking about um there's all fours english rough and honors and whist french rough five cards and uh, a game called costly colors bone ace um of put and the high game wit and reason um a pastime called the art of memory another called plain dealing another called queen nazarene another called lantalu lantalu that sounds extraordinary uh, another called peniche uh, post and pair uh, banker salad and beast have you played the the card game beast sam i'll send you a pdf of this and you can find find out now so the all fours game i think is is quite telling and i'll just read you a little sort of extract of it here um and it says um a game of at all fours all fours is a game very much played in kent and very well it may since from thence it drew its first original and although the game may be looked upon as trivial and as inconsiderable yet i have known kentish gentlemen and others of very considerable note who have played great sums of money at it yet that adds not much to the worth of the game for a man may play away an estate um on this in one or three up to three throws so we've got then this idea that card playing is something that is you know part of salon society that it's you know that it's really interesting think of it in terms of the tea table that i was talking about uh in a, f a few weeks ago um and the way in which you know cards could be props for decorum and politeness um in the same way that fans and snuff boxes accentuated hands and this of course brings us back to gloves um but the the other side of it is that actually what it does is it leads to a growth of gambling and a fear of 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 gambling and the ills of doing of doing this kind of thing and we see this in various places there are various groups including the methodists who produce these sort of very moralizing and corrective instructional tracts uh, against it you know basically you know discouraging people from bad habits and there's one particular um tract that I was looking at that was published in 17 uh 56 i'm 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 working from the roman numerals here and it's 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 entitled a plain and candid address to all lovers of the game at cards and i'll read you from the the introduction here the principal motive which induced me to draw up the following essay proceeded from the great concern with which i have long beheld several ranks of my fellow christians pursue their sensual pleasures but especially that steady eagerness with which many within the sphere of my acquaintance are almost daily pursuing that branch of amusement which this tract more immediately relateth to get on with it get to the point goodness me this 
very sort of highly strung uh, 18th century prose. I mean the low, trifling, unprofitable time waster called a game at cards, which, however innocent it may be thought to be, and let this be a warning to you, Sam Willis, in itself by many seems generally to be rendered criminal by the manner in which most of its advocates are seen to pursue it, which I shall endeavour hereafter to show... In the meantime, referring the reader to the tract itself, I earnestly with it may have the desired effect of convincing those who are so strongly attached to this kind of diversion as to become discontented and unhappy if they happen to be prevented attending it at the usual seasons. How unworthy such a pursuit is of a rational being formed for the contemplation of objects as far superior to it as the glorious light of the sun is to the shades of midnight, and if this attempt should prove successful to reclaim any from an inordinate love of this amusement, and to regulate their conduct, both in manner and measure, when they engage in it, I shall reckon myself happy and well rewarded for my undertaking. So there we are, let that be a warning to you, young Willis. <laughs> I love that. Play not at cards. Play play not at cards. No, um, which actually leads me on to uh, what I was going to talk about, the playing cards of Peter Flotner. Have you heard of Peter Flotner? He's I right, have not. Right I in have your, now. In your wheelhouse, 1540, Nuremberg, um, a German designer, sculptor and a printmaker. I bet you've come across stuff that he's done and may not have known about it, James. Um, he is famous for making the most extraordinary deck of cards in post-Reformation Germany. And his cards are totally fantastic because what he does is um, illustrates them with the, the vulgar everyday activities of common people. There's a great deal of toilet humour and irreverence, which, James, I know you are you are mad keen on. And it, it kind of um, it's juxtaposed with some fantastic bourgeois pretentiousness as well. The, the cards themselves are fascinating. Um, there's a uh, there's a collection in the Met Museum which is where I've come across them. They're not a normal pack of 52. Well, I say normal. They're not the, the traditional ones that we we would use in, in what's called a French-suited deck. Um, so it's got 48 cards, and you have a... Um, primarily used for, for a trick-taking game called Carnoffel, which is the earliest recorded card game. Um his cards are painted, they're enhanced with gold, they're magnificent things. And the backs of these cards are inscribed with musical notations and lyrics. It's wonderful. So you can kind of sing a song and each suit is given a particular voice. So you have the suit of acorns, that's for the bass. Leafs is tenor, hearts is treble and bells is alto. Um, then it comes to the cards themselves. I said it's only 50, 48 rather than the 52. And each suit is headed by men alone. You have a king, you have an upper knave and an under knave or an upper jack and an under jack. So uh, extraordinary. There are, there are no aces and there are no women at all. And just those 48 cards. And what he's doing here is he's um, illustrating uh, man's baser instincts whilst he's warning, warning against them. And the cards can be read as a kind of like a, a microcosm of, of a world long, long gone. We can only get at uh, through little glimpses. And at the same time, it animates the, 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 the social and the moral themes 
uh, of the time, which I think still resonate today. So I'm just going to describe a few of these cards. They're, they're totally fantastic. And if you want to find them, it's Peter Flotner, F-L-O-T-N-E-R, his playing cards from 1540. Uh, the King of Hearts, this is a, the king is a costumed uh, a Turkish sultan. There are dead children at his feet. Um, uh, this was actually a conventional, sort of traditional way of conveying the perceived cruelty of the Turks, as well as recalling biblical stories of Herod, the massacre of the innocents. Uh, you've got the Eight of Hearts. With uh, This is my favourite one. It's a woman with a sausage on her nose attempting to attract a young gentleman. Read into that what you will, James Daybell. Uh, the Seven of Hearts, a pregnant woman holding up a convex mirror. This is really cool. So uh, we've got two gentlemen. She's uh, They're looking at her. She's holding up a, a mirror, but in the reflection appears two fools. They're dressed as, as fools, as jesters. The Four of Hearts, you've got a, a woman bending over, exp- Exposing her bum and farting, basically, but with so much force that it knocks her husband off his stool. So he's he's being blown backwards by uh, by the wind and the gases. The third three of hearts. Um, you've got two women. They're attacking a young man with a pitchfork and something called a distaff. Um, and that seems to be all about the the unfortunate consequences of an illicit entanglement. Uh, the Five of Hearts, two young lovers meet at a fountain. And it seems kind of refreshingly innocent, this one. But um, if you look at all of the other cards, you wouldn't uh, trust it. I'm sure there is something up with these two young lovers meeting at a fountain. I'm certain there is more to the story. But um, my powers as a historian, my, my powers of visual analysis failed entirely and I can see nothing apart from two happy lovers at a fountain. However, I'm convinced it's probably rude, one way or another. So anyway, the playing cards of Peter Flotner, they're fantastic, um, used to make political points, used for social commentary. Uh, There are other... Actually, I got into this because I came across a pack of cards made in the 1680s of the Spanish Armada, so almost a century after the Spanish Armada, and they were... This is a time of kind of very high anti-Catholic sentiment. They're looking back over a century to a fear of invasion by the Catholics. It's all just before uh, King James runs away and, and the Glorious Revolution and, and the Protestant Revolution. So that, they're, they're a fascinating pack of playing cards. They're at the um, collection of the National Maritime Museum uh, used, to, again, to commentate on uh, contemporary politics and the themes there, particularly on the religious theme of anti-Catholic uh, fear and the horror of invasion at the same time. So these cards are used uh, for in, in a variety of ways and can can tell many, many different tales. Oh, funny you might talk about those those cards, because um, my final little little bit is is, in fact, about those political cards and the uh, 1670s, uh, which is all around the popish plot. So it's this it's this sort of fictitious conspiracy um, by Titus Oates. Um, that that the Catholics are going to to invade, which leads to all sorts of anti-Catholic hysteria. Um, and there's a brilliant um, essay uh, by the wonderful Mark Knight um, called "Possessing the Visual: The Materiality of Visual Print Culture in Later Stuart Britain," uh, which is actually, to give a little plug, it's actually in a book that I edited uh, many moons ago called "Material Readings." of early modern culture. And I edited that with my uh, buddy and colleague at Plymouth, Peter Hines, uh, who is a genius um, book historian uh, and a real expert on on the Popish plot. And 
I think what's what's fascinating about this is that it actually is a it's about the visual turn in in history. So it's the way in which we start historians who traditionally have looked at high politics have actually started looking at visual culture and and imagery. And one of the things that he looks at in this article is the playing cards that are produced in the 1670s around the Popish plot that sort of depict different scenes and are used in, a, in an innately uh, political way. And I think the I think that's the context that your that your Spanish Armada deck is being is being printed in Sam hmm. so it sort of fits into the into exactly the same way and actually what you've got is at a very sort of popular level you've got the sort of um these debates around uh, different religious groups played out on the back of a on the back of a card um but that's all i have to say on that matter but i think it's fascinating so i think we we encourage people to look at uh, at cards not simply as things that you play with but as as historical objects or documents in their own right that they have they're used for different reasons they're printed to take part in in political debates they're used for uh, notations and writings they become um, they become a form of currency or ious in themselves so all manner of ways in which we can in which we can see them and then you can also think about them uh, in the context of cards and card playing and you can connect them to uh, cultures of of politeness and also then look at the sort of darker side of of card playing and the games that were played for money with them and the dangers and ills of addiction to cards and gambling um and and all the ills that that leads to so there we are sam there's a little sort of trot around the unexpected history of cards Fabulous stuff. Really, really enjoyed that. Uh, guys, if you want to find out what else we're up to, do please follow us on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis on Twitter. And if you like maritime and naval history, do please listen to my podcast, The Mariner's Mirror Podcast. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at James Daybell. Uh, you can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Check us out on our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. And if you want uh, to see a picture of me, go to uh, Plymouth train station. And apparently, I, the, my face is currently on the doors uh, to enter the station. Um, extraordinary. Um, I've just been sent a photograph of it. Uh, entirely frightening. Uh, you'll flee Plymouth uh, as soon as you see it. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I'm going to go down there just especially, take a photo of myself Excellent. next to it. Excellent. I'll um, send you a photograph. I'm a Plymouth pioneer, Sam. Uh, one of the pioneering researchers at the university. Oh, hooray, hooray. Well, um, there you are, guys. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that. We'll be back um, soon with uh, Woe. We're definitely going to do Woe. How about Woe and grandparents? There we go. We'll do something like that. <laughs> okay. Oh, that sounds good. Oh, right. Woe is me. I, okay. Yes. Grandparents. Grandparents I'm up for. I'll have to think about Woe. What about... Um, what about, um, goodness me, what about smugness? Yep, we could do smugness. Smugness and grandparents. And woe. And woe. Okay. <laughs> Pop those three down. Right, guys, uh, we'll be back with you soon. Cheerio. Take care, guys. Happy Easter.
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.